I just want to tell you the story how God came into my life, um, and I will try to make it quick because it's going to be freezing here in about an hour, right? Uh, no. And then after this, no joke, um, I'm going to be here as long as anybody is around. I'm going to sign books. We'll do Q&A, and after the Q&A, I'll sign more books. So if you want to go home, take a nap, come back, I'll be here, okay? I'm not going anyplace. It's my privilege uh, to get to meet you personally and stuff. So my story basically is this. Uh, my parents came from Europe. My dad came from Greece. My mom came from Germany. They met in an English class in New York City. I know, isn't that cute? I know. I love them. And they met in English class. Now, if you're, if you're raised Greek and German, that means you will be raised Greek. Yes. You got some Greeks in Philly? This keeps happening. I, it's in my contract that the water needs to be glued to the stage. So, but... I, I, I got to say, that's not a joke, right? The Gre if you know Greeks, that's like their, their religion is being Greek, and their favorite hobby is talking about being Greek. Like, they're very proud to be Greeks, with good reason, but, you know, right? Uh, so I grew up, and some of you know this. The theme of my story, really, is that God knows every one of us more intimately than we could ever know ourselves. Now, that's a heavy thought. But you have to understand, if, God, if the God of the Bible is real. He knows you and me more intimately than we could ever know ourselves. So normally you kind of look for that knowledge like you think, oh, I'm going to get married someday and, and this woman or this guy, they're going to they're gonna understand me the way I've always wanted to be understood, right? Well, no. Take it from my wife. No. No, a thousand times no. No, but in all seriousness, the point is that a human being even you know, your soulmate, which is a garbage Hollywood idea. Don't tell Todd I said that. But it, it, the point is, if you want to know if you're married to the right person, like look on the marriage certificate, right? If, if the name is there, that's the right person, okay? So you're going to have trouble in marriage, just like you're going to have trouble with your kids or you're going to have trouble. Life is not so easy because human beings are involved, right? But that perfect sense of being known, which we all still long for, why do we long for it? Because God wants us to long for it because we can only be known that way by him. Now, that's a fact, and I'm telling you, every one of us is tempted to look for that in other people. I do that all the time, and I have to remind myself over and over and over, Eric, what would you say if somebody told you that story? You know what you'd say to them. Say it to yourself. Preach to yourself. We all are looking for that meaning in life, and we want to be known, and it's only when Jesus came into my life that I experienced that. But you'll see when I tell you the end of the story how dramatic that was. Um, but just to give you the story, I grew up in a home, Greek and German. Now, all of us sometimes feel a little bit like a fish out of water. Like, everybody feels like, well, I'm different. I don't fit in like everybody else. We all have that feeling. If you don't have it now, like maybe you're in high school and you're in the cool group, yeah, just wait 10 years. You'll be very uncool. Wait 20 years. You, you know, everybody goes through times in life when everything's good and then things are bad. And that, so at some point, we all feel out of step and out of sync. And if it's, you don't feel that way now, you know, uh, you will feel that way apart from God. So in my life growing up, I always was the odd kid out because if you're hanging out with all the Greeks, but your mother's German at home, we didn't speak Greek because my mother didn't speak Greek. My father didn't speak German, so he spoke English, right? 
Anybody speak English real quick? So I'm so, I feel so good about that. Uh, so I always felt like the odd kid out growing up in the Greek community. Then we moved to Danbury, Connecticut, because I was raised in Queens, New York City, like the current president. I forget his name, Pence. What is it? Uh, he was born in Queens. I was born in Queens. And basically, we moved to the country, Danbury, Connecticut. Everybody's doing Little League and stuff like that. Now, again, I'm a fish out of water because my parents are strange European immigrants, and I've never played baseball, kickball. So, like I'm, so again, I feel kind of like a fish out of water. I end up going... Uh, you know, kind of the immigrant's dream. I went to Yale University, right? Now, a lot of people are impressed with that, and I was just saying to Pastor Bob, you know, colleges today, this is nothing new, but it was really a shock to me growing up with immigrant parents who loved me and taught me that this is a great country and we did everything we could to come here because we escaped communism. Have you heard of communism? What about socialism? Uh, if you've lived it, you know boy, if I could get to a place like America with all of its faults, oh, I would do anything to get there because at least they try to correct their sins. They repent from their sins or whatever. They try in America. But in these other countries, they're all in on, you know, corruption and whatever. So my parents taught me these basic heartland values. And I go to a place like Yale, and suddenly I get hit in the head with political correctness um, and, you know, that kind of lockstep call it what you will, cultural Marxism. This is in the 80s. It was already very, very strong. But because I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, I thought I was a Christian. Because if you're raised Greek, you will be raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, right? But the problem for a lot of people going to church, okay? I have a lot of Catholic friends. My wife was raised in the Catholic Church. Sometimes you go to church and you never get the good news. You never get uh, the good news of the gospel. You never get the good news in the in the more generic sense of, hey, all this is true. Hey, all this is wonderful. Hey, all this is meant for you with all your particular quirks and problems that you think you're the only one that has. No, God came for you and wants to have a relationship with you and everything you're longing for in life, which you think can be fulfilled by another person or other people, or by a job, or this kind of success, or that success. Listen, we are all dumb enough to believe that in one way or the other. Even if you say, I'm a Christian, it's our sin nature, that you're looking in all the wrong places. Even when you say, oh, I believe everything the Bible says, you have to continually work against that. And so I was not raised in an environment where I was really taught, like, okay, Eric, this is the answer to your longing. Jesus and a personal relationship with Jesus. And oh, by the way, we're not talking about Santa Claus. This isn't just to make you feel good. This is actually true. I never learned that growing up. Now, if you go to a place like Yale University, most universities in America today, you will enter an atmosphere of dramatic secularism. If you are a serious Christian or a serious Jew, you will be ostracized, marginalized, they don't have any place for you because everything you stand for, if you believe in the God of the Bible, makes them squirm, right? If you start talking about a biblical sexual ethic, whatever, like they're, they're out before the, a syllable comes out of your mouth because they have adopted a different worldview. So I go to Yale University, and I don't really know what I believe because I was not really taught. And again, I know there are people raised in the church, you didn't get this stuff, 
And so if you go into a university setting or you go into the world, you go to New York City or Philly or wherever you're working, you know, most people don't believe that Jesus stuff. And so you kind of go with the flow. That's what happened to Eric Metaxas. I was raised by uh, immigrants. And so when I come to a place like Yale, I'm thinking, hey, this is this is success. This is where the winners go. Um, I want to be like them. How do they think? Oh, this is how they think. Well, I guess I'll drift along with their values. So by the time I graduated, I was lost. Now, I didn't know I was lost. I just thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Um, but the fact of the matter is that I was lost and struggling. And I always joke around that if you go to a place like Yale, they don't believe that there is a God who loves you. His son is named Jesus, and that's true. And he has a plan for your life, and he wants to embrace you and walk with you through life's trials and celebrate with you. No, that's none of that's true. Science and stuff, we've disproved that. So the answer is we evolved out of the primordial soup without any help. It just happened by accident. Therefore, your life literally has no meaning. Now, nobody actually says that explicitly because if you think of it that way, it's gruesome even to somebody who doesn't believe in God when somebody says your life has no meaning. You know that love you feel for that other person, for your daughter, for your son, for your parents, for your spouse? Yeah, that's just chemicals. That's just uh, evolution perpetuating the species, and we hate to break it to you, but there's no such thing as love, anything transcendent, goodness, uh, now. And there's no evil. There's no, there's no meaning to life. Who could even process that. Now, the reason you can't process it is for two reasons. Number one, it's not true. By the way, it's a secret. Don't tell anybody, but it's not true. And number two, if you really were made by the God of the Bible, he created you to long for meaning. So even if you, you don't have meaning, even if you don't know him, you long for something beyond yourself. You long for a reason to live. A, a, a reason to get up in the morning. You know, we are created by him, and we long for him. And until we find him, who is the meaning of life, we're struggling. We're looking for substitutes, and we're going to go through one substitute after the other, after the other, after the other. And sometimes if you're really lucky, you'll hit rock bottom and be miserable and know that you cannot find the answer. Now, the good news is that the answer can find you. But you have to be open to the answer, right? So I was not really open. Now, I forgot to say that uh, the, the kind of punchline to my story is that there are three things I need to mention. Uh, if you had said to me around my 25th birthday, um, who are you, right? I don't know that I could have given you an answer because, as I said, God knows us infinitely better than we could ever know ourselves, but if I were to give you the, the, the real answer around my 25th birthday, I'd say, well, I, um, I'm Greek. I grew up in that environment. That's a big part of who I am, son of immigrants. Um, growing up in Danbury, Connecticut, when we moved up there, I did a lot of fishing. It was my only uh, hobby. I was not a pothead. I was a studious kid. Uh, I, I was not athletic. I basically, you know, did my homework, and friends and I, we would just go fishing everywhere, trout fishing, fly fishing for trout, uh, bass fishing, you know, with spinnerbaits and boats and everywhere. It was just a big part of my life, fishing. Well, I should say that one day, my father, who's a big evangelist for being Greek, 
Uh, Greeks are. If they're not, something's wrong. They, they just are. My father sees a fish, a chrome fish on the back of a car. There's a few in the parking lot here. And he tells me, I'm in high school, he says, do you know what that is? I said, no, I, what, what is that? He goes, the early Christians, now my father's not a born-again believer, right, at that time, but he says, the early Christians used to use that symbol of the fish because the Greek word for fish is ichthus, right? It's spelled Yota, I'm not going to go into that. It's spelled ichthus, right? Some of you know an ichthyologist, or if you have tropical fish, ich, they call it ich. Ichthyologist means, you know, somebody who studies fish. The ancient Greek word for fish is ichthus. So that symbol meant ichthus because it was an acronym for the word ichthus was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Isus Christos Theos Imon Sotir. So when they saw that symbol, they knew Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. That's the secret sign for Christians. And my father says to me, the, the cross was, you know, before they used the cross, it was an offensive symbol. It was an execution device. But the fish was the symbol. But he was excited because he could tell me about the Greek words, right? So I always affiliated the, the, um, the symbol of the fish with the Greek words. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. So I tell you this because at the end of the story, it all comes together. But so the third part of my life, I go to Yale University, right? So Greek immigrant thing, a ton of fishing. When I go to college, the life of the mind becomes important to me. I began wondering about the meaning of life. And as I said to you, if you're looking for the meaning of life at a place like Yale, good luck with that. Because they have already decided about 100 years before I went there, you know what? We don't get into that because uh, it's really depressing. We've discovered life has no meaning, and we don't want to depress you, so we're just going to avoid that subject, okay? So while you're here getting your education, that's in quotes, because what kind of an education can you get if they don't answer these questions, we will not talk about who you are, where you come from, whether there's a God. If there is a God, can you know who God is? Is there a way you could know God? And we're definitely not talking about where you're going. We don't get into that. We assume a secular humanist worldview, which says you come from nowhere, you got here by accident, and you're going absolutely nowhere, just like when a tree gets chopped down or when you squash a bug. It is over. That's it. Enjoy it while you're here. By the way, since there's no God, there's no good, there's no evil, you can do anything you want. There's no guilt unless you're stupid. Don't have guilt. Just do whatever because, you know, you're only going to be here for a little while. Grab the gusto. So that's the life philosophy. But they don't say that. But I'm saying it's communicated. And it's communicated in a lot of the movies we watch, a lot of TV we watch. It's in the culture. But it was really hardcore at Yale. So if you're really longing for the meaning of life and you're actually, I was an English major. I was studying books and I was actually thinking, I'm learning about life from reading this great literature. If you read great literature, you can learn about these things. And you realize that there are limits to how we're supposed to behave. Uh, and that when you go outside those limits, you end up hurting yourself. Um, all that kind of stuff you pick up from literature because it's built into the warp and the woof of creation by God. It's inescapable. But they were not interested in talking about that very much. So I graduated. I had drunk the Kool-Aid. And I was really believing, you know, if there is a God, I, I guess he can't know who he is. And anybody who claims to know God, they're crazy. Like, that's just not possible. Um, and uh, 
you know, they probably live over in flyover country, maybe in some parts of Pennsylvania. You know, th those people, they need a crutch and stuff. But the educated people, we know that, no, it's just the best you can do is to say, uh, I don't know. Uh, so I bought that whole story, and I graduated. And I think the goal when you're at a place like Yale, their attitude is like, look, if life has no meaning, we're not going to get into that. But here's what we'll do. We're, we'll hook you up with some, like, good skills, a big, uh, juicy diploma. So you get a great job, and, you know, you will, you'll make money, and you'll prosper. And that's, that's what life is all about. And by the way, while you're, you know, chasing after that brass ring in your career, in whatever it is, it helps you not think about those questions we avoided here for four years because you don't want to think about those questions because in case we haven't mentioned it, we have no good answers. It's really depressing. You'll want to kill yourself. Don't do that. Just, you know, get a great job. And on the weekends, there's like sports and alcohol, and you'll get through it. It'll, it'll be all over in a few decades. But they don't say that because that's depressing. So they just don't say but they kind of communicate it quietly. So I graduated, and my first problem, how do you get a good job if you're an English major? I was an English major. I wanted to be a writer. I definitely did not get a good job. So I floundered and floated trying to be a writer, trying to wonder what am I going to even write about. I knew I wanted to be a writer. But I, I floundered and I floated and I drifted. Now, if you do that out of college, you know what will happen. You will move back in with your parents. There's just no way. It's like a math axiom. It's like there's no way you won't move back. So you move back in with your parents. So guess what? I moved back in with my parents. And my parents are like, e Eric, we didn't get to go to college. We're European immigrants working difficult jobs so you could go to college. By the way, Yale. Now, my parents, my, the friends that I had at Yale, their parents would look at me and go like, oh, Eric's just trying to find himself. My parents would be like, Eric, you need to find yourself a job and get out. What is wrong with you? We, we, if we had college educations, like, come on, what's wrong with, well, moving back in your parents, your parents, if they're European immigrants, if they're my parents, is bad, is a bad idea. Do not do that. Because they will eat you alive. Because if you don't have a plan for your life, trust me, they have a plan for your life. And European immigrants are not shy. Like, American parents are like, hey, I don't want to smother my kid with my, you know, like, hey. Well, can I tell you something? European parents do want to smother you with, with their ideas and their love. And, uh, and they will. They will smother you. They will kill you. And so I was in this environment now living with my parents. And so I think i got to get a job. So I get a job as a proofreader at an international chemical conglomerate in Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah, some of you Bible scholars would understand that experience is described in the, in the Hebrew word Gehenna. You son if you didn't get that joke, see me after class. We need to talk. So I can joke around about it now, but I'll tell you, folks, I was 24 years old. I was as miserable as you can get. People talk about being suicidal. I, I don't think I was quite there, but I was as close as I ever want to get. It was very painful for me, very painful time. And I was miserable, and every day I would get in that car and drive on the highway in the traffic to a job that I despised. Because at Yale, I was a celebrated writer of fiction and poetry, and I was the editor of the humor magazine. So can you imagine proofreading manuals 
in a chemical company, like what agony this was? Maybe I could use the word Sheol will help some of you out. And if you didn't get either of those, definitely see me after class. So I was so miserable at that time, but I was not around my Yale friends who would have kind of distracted me in a way. I was left with my own thoughts about how my life has no meaning and I'm miserable and my parents are not helping right now. And while I was in this miserable job, I met a guy uh, who was a proofreader. My Miracles book is dedicated to him. His name is Ed Tuttle. And he was very serious about the Bible. He starts sharing his faith with me. And I was like, oh, no, it's one of the born agains. Please, I don't want to become like that. I do not want to be like those people. They're obviously nuts. And they're like right-wing crazies, probably tendency to violence. And uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, they claim to know the truth. That's really sweet that they can know the truth. Thank you very much. I'm not interested. So I was in enough pain, however, to listen a little bit. Then I found out he went to an Episcopal church. I figured, wow, those people don't believe anything. It's safe. I could talk to him. It's totally safe. I can talk to him. So this Episcopal who actually believed all that stuff starts sharing more with me, more with me. I'm still not buying it, but I'm in enough pain to keep talking because if I haven't told you, I was in pain. I was miserable. And he'd invite me to church. Want to come to church with me this weekend? No. You want to do Bible study at lunch? No. But I didn't tell him, leave me alone. Don't talk about that God stuff. I'm still tracking a little bit, tracking a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. Well, one night, right around my 25th birthday, it's got to be five years ago now, I... Uh, maybe seven at the most. I, um, I had a dream. Now, this has never happened to me before since that I had a dream, anything like this. But before I tell you the dream, i got to tell you one little piece. While I was at Yale looking for the meaning of life, I came up with what I thought was a brilliant intellectual solution. How do you square the idea? There's all these different religions. They have all these different theories about the meaning of life. They can't all be right. Uh, what, how do you, I came up with this idea. I remember I, remember I said I was a, a fisherman. I said, you know what? If you've studied a little Freud and you've studied a little Jung, now, by the way, I'm not recommending that, but I'm telling you, I did. And they talk about the idea of the soul and they talk about the, the, the psyche, the soul. They talk about the idea. Jung talks about the collective unconscious. Uh, he says that, you know, your conscious mind, you have your conscious mind, but there's this thing called the collective unconscious, and that's God. That's divinity, right? That kind of links all of us. Now, it just so happens that's not true. But I didn't know it at the time. I thought it sounded like a great idea. I thought that sounds like a great idea, and I came up with this image. I said, you know what? Maybe the goal of life is like when you're ice fishing. I could understand ice fishing. You're standing on the frozen lake. Your mind... Your conscious mind is like the ice on the top. And the goal of life is to drill through the ice and to touch the water. And that's the collective unconscious. And it goes everywhere, and it's way bigger than the ice. And that's what all religions are getting at. You want to touch the Godhead, divinity, the energy force, whatever it is. Sounds like a great idea, right? So I said, yeah, that's a, it's a great idea, and I think I've solved the meaning of life. Pretty good at age 20. 
And, uh, and by the way, it requires nothing of me, which is key if you're 20 years old and you want to do stuff that, like Christians would say, not to do. So I was like, that's great. I've solved the problem. Awesome. Now, when I was living with my parents, miserable, 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 that, that idea, obviously, not only did it have no restrictions on my life, it did not help me at all. Zero. So clearly I hadn't solved my problems, but I thought it's a nice intellectual idea. I tell you that because around my 25th birthday, after I'm talking to this guy, Ed Tuttle, miserable, living with my parents, I have the following dream. I'm standing on a frozen lake, Candlewood Lake in Danbury, Connecticut. That's where I grew up. That's where I was in a bass fishing tournament. It's where I, uh, I, I swam as a kid. In the dream, it is the dead of winter, super bright sun, blue sky, snow, ice, and I am in the middle of the lake ice fishing with my friend. And I look down and... There's a hole in the ice, as you know, when you're ice fishing. Do you guys have ice here? Yeah. Um, and I look at the hole in the ice, and I see, holy cow, there's a, there's a fish sticking its snout out of the ice. Now, if you're an ice fisherman, you know that never happens. And I look at it, and I lean down, and I pick it up by the gill, and I lift it up, and it is a large either a huge pickerel or a pike, and that kind of a fish has a bronze coloring, beautiful, and I hold it up into this golden sunlight because it's so so bright because of the ice and the snow, the blue sky, and I hold this bronze fish up, and in this bright sunlight, I look at this fish, and it looks golden because of the sunlight and the reflection on the ice and whatever. It looks like a golden fish. And I'm holding it up, and as I'm holding it up, I realize, no, Eric, it doesn't look like a golden fish. It is a golden fish. It is made of gold, and it is alive. This is like a fairy tale. And in that moment, sometimes God will do this to you if you have a very hard head. God just drops into my head the meaning of my dream, in the middle of my dream. I'm holding up this golden fish, and I don't hear words. I just knew that God has just one-upped me with my own symbol system. I know in an instant in the dream that I've been looking for the meaning of life, and I've been thinking if you could drill through the ice to touch the water, that's the meaning of life. And God says, Eric... I love you so much that I'm going to speak to you in a way that only you would understand, in a symbol system that only makes sense to you. And I'm here to tell you that you are looking for something that goes way beyond inert water, to drill through the ice to get water. And I'm giving you what you're looking for. My son, Jesus. And then I clicked in my mind and I thought of the Greek fish, Jesus Christ, the son of God our Savior, and I knew in the dream that my search was over and that I had found Jesus, or I kind of think if you're listening carefully, you realize he found me because I didn't go to where he was. He came to where I was. And what happens when fish leave water? They come to die if they leave water. 
I'm holding up this golden fish, and I know in my heart that God is wrapping up these pieces of my life, the fishing, the Greek stuff, my uh, pretentious intellectual symbolism uh, at Yale, and he's saying, I know you better than you could ever dream of being known, Eric. And in this short dream, like a fairy tale, I am telling you the meaning of life, and here it is. And in the dream, folks, now I'm not making this up. Think about this. In the dream, I know this is true. I know there is no way this is anything but God speaking to me on my own terms because he wants to reach me in a way that I could never be reached because my friend Ed Tuttle and others had tried everything, talking about what the Bible says, what C.S. Lewis says, and I go, yeah, 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 whatever. God has to do a miracle to save a soul. You cannot argue somebody into the kingdom of God. You cannot argue somebody into accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to talk about it. I do all the time about how it is logical and how it is true and how he did rise from the dead bodily and how that matters. And if you have to uh, make a decision, once you look at all the facts, if you're open to the truth, you're going to say, you know what? Unfortunately, I think he did rise from the dead. I don't know, but it sure sounds when I hear the cases made for it. But in order for God to really reach you beyond just your mind, it has to be what can only be described as a miracle. There is no other way. And as if to make that point clear to me, how much faith did it take for me to get saved in that dream? In case you didn't know, uh, I was unconscious at the time. Almost every night when I sleep, I'm unconscious. When I dream, I'm unconscious. When you're unconscious, you can't say, well, you know what? Praise God, I walked that sawdust trail and I made a decision for Christ. I was unconscious. And it's kind of like Lazarus in the tomb, okay? People say, you want to get saved, you got to have faith. You want to get healed, you got to have faith. Lazarus, come forth. How much faith did the rotting corpse Lazarus have? I've already tipped you off. None. Sometimes God needs to be real clear. You know, algebra, it's like, you know, solving for X. Let's be real clear what is happening here. Lazarus, he didn't just die. He's been dead. He stinks. He's a rotting corpse. And I, the Lord God, have the power of life and death, and I can raise him from the grave. It had nothing to do with Lazarus. Jesus did it because he loved Lazarus. Jesus rose me from the spiritual grave because I was a rotting corpse, spiritually speaking. The only spiritual life comes from God. And it is the resurrection life of Jesus that is the only eternal life in the universe. And unless he gives it to you, you have no ability to get it any more than you have the ability to swim to Hawaii. The greatest swimmer in the universe will drown swimming to Hawaii. And the worst swimmer in the universe will drown swimming to Hawaii. So if you're like, well, I swam 100 yards, you only swam 50. Yeah, but you both drowned. <laughs> Apart from God, we all drown. We all stay dead. Hitler and Mother Teresa both drown. But Jesus, the God who invented the universe and who spoke it into being, has the ability to bring Hawaii to you, 
on a platter. He has the ability to bring you to Hawaii. He doesn't care if you could swim 50 miles on your own. It's not really relevant. You're going to drown. You need him to get you there. Now, how much more is that true of heaven? If you think, I, I, I've spoken a lot on Luther the last couple of years, right? Luther was in a world that says, if you try hard and pray hard and do this and don't do this and don't do this, you, you might make it to heaven. And if you don't, you're going to hell. Or if you're lucky, you'll be in purgatory for 10,000 years suffering. And Luther discovers, wait a second, I think we may have missed something in the last few hundred years. The Bible says, if I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that God rose him from the dead, that the Bible is true, and that God created this Messiah to send into the world his son Jesus to die in your place and then rise from the dead in your place. If you believe in him, you can rise from the dead when you die in this life. And even before that, you can rise from spiritual death the moment you place your faith in Jesus. Now, all this came to me in this dream. And I woke up, and I went to work the next day, and I said to my friend, Ed, i got to tell you this dream I had. And so I, I started to tell him, and he's like, well, what, what do you think it means? And I said words to him that I never would have said ever without being embarrassed. But today I was not embarrassed. I said, Ed, it means I have accepted Jesus. I know who he is, that he died for me, that he loves me, that he is God, that the Bible is true. And I was flooded with joy just as I was in the dream. In the dream, when I had this sense of what God was saying, I was flooded with joy that I found the meaning of life, what my heart has longed for and not found. I have found in him. And it's true. It's not just a fairy tale. It's true. And I felt the same thing when I told him this the next day. And I got to tell you, folks, when I told him, I, I, I felt that joy. I felt that thing. And ever since then, I've been walking with Jesus. Now, remember, you have good days and bad days. But once eternal life in the person of Jesus comes to live inside you, you can never go back to being dead. You are eternally alive. And you will be with him when you die. And you will be with him before you die as you walk through this life, through the difficulties of life, the, 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 the trials of life, the joys of life. You walk with him, and it's a different walk, I'm telling you right now. If you don't believe in miracles, I'm telling you, I've, I've experienced many miracles. And not everybody experiences the same one. God is different. Just as he was different speaking to me in that dream, then he's different to each one of us. Every parent, if you have several kids, you're different with them. You're the same, but you're different because you've got to speak to them differently. If this one is a, a hothead and an emotional and this one's cool as a cucumber, and, you know, if you love them, you speak to them in a way to reach them. Well, how much more does God love us, and how much did he love me that he spoke to me in that dream in a way that would have been nonsense to anybody else? But to me, it changed my life forever and ever and ever. And, yeah... And I, when I think about that, I get scared sometimes. Like, wow, wow. There was no way I could have found him, but he found me. Now, I, I don't know why. Does he love me more than he loves other people? I know that's not true. I know that's a lie from the pit of hell, in case you're tempted to think that. What he proved to me in that dream is that he knows 
everybody in a way that they couldn't even dream of being known that way. They longed for that. And he gave me that dream in part so that for the rest of my life I could tell that story to let you know that if you ever doubt it, take it from me. God knows you better than you will ever know yourself. And he loves you and he has a plan for you that can never be executed unless you open yourself up to letting him come in. That's the way it is. That's the way he created the universe so that we long for him, but he does not force us. We have to allow him to come in. And so you can't yank him down from heaven, but you can invite him quietly and say, Lord, if you're real, if this is true, show me. If this is true, if you are who you say you are, really, I'd be willing to do anything for you if that's true, but you got to make it real to me. You pray that prayer quietly, and he will honor it in, in his way, in his way. But trust me, he wants to live inside you more than you might want him to live inside you. He wants to be with you in eternity more than you might want to be in eternity. People's like, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. You, you don't want to go to heaven half as much as God wants you to go to heaven. Have you ever heard that he sent his son to die a horrific torture death so that you could be with him forever? That's how much he loves you. You're his beloved child. He knows you more intimately than you'll ever dream. That's the only way it works, folks. That's the only way life is meant to work because he created you. There's no exceptions. There's nobody out there he didn't create. There's nobody out there he doesn't love. There's nobody out there for whom the meaning of life can be found any other way. I do not have time to go into that. Maybe in the Q&A, if you have some questions, I'm happy to, to talk about it. I just want to touch on one final thing. It changed my life. And you know what happens when Jesus comes to live inside you, right? You know he's real, and you want to live for him, right? I immediately stopped sleeping with my girlfriend. Now, that's how I know that I really believed. Because there are certain things you cannot do on your own. When you live in a sex-suffused culture, and somebody says, you need to live this way, we're at a point in culture where that is so hard to do. But if God comes to live inside you in the person of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, because you said, if you're real, come into my heart, he gives you the power. He gives you the power. He gave me the power in a supernatural way. Now, this doesn't happen the same in other people. Some people struggle more in this or that. I mean, all of our lives are different. But I'm here to tell you he gave me a supernatural ability to say, I don't want anything near me that would displease God because he loves me so much, I would never give that up for anything. I'd be a fool. And I'm so glad he made that clear to me. I didn't figure it out myself, if you've been listening. I did not figure it out myself. He gave this to me as a gift. He gave me the ability to live the way he wants me to live for his purposes. And that's what he wants to give to each of us. And we need to tell our friends, like, oh, you know, you, you, you think God wants you to do this or not do this or whatever. That. Well, you might be right, but guess what? He wants you to come to him as you are now. And if you come to him by faith and say, Jesus, come into my heart, he will come into your life 
and he will give you the strength to do stuff that right now you might not be able to dream of it. He will make a way. That I can say from experience. And by the grace of God, I was able to live that way until I was married to my wife, whom I, I met in church. Now, the last thing I want to say, I wrote a book called If You Can Keep It. Now, that's a whole other speech, but let me just say this. I didn't know this till a couple of years ago, but the founders of, of this country, whom I have come to revere in many ways, um, they understood something that has really been forgotten in our public life. It's been forgotten by most conservatives, and it's been forgotten by the country, generally speaking. And this is what the founders knew. I'm not talking about the Christian founders. I'm talking about every one of the founders, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, everyone, 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 not an exception. They understood that self-government, liberty, this great idea, this crazy idea of liberty that had never been accomplished in the history of the world, kind of like what I just said a minute ago, is not possible without God. Now, imagine what I just said. They were not all theologically orthodox Christians, Ben Franklin and some others, they, were, they called you know, deists or whatever, but let me tell you something. Some of those deists had more faith than a lot of what we call Christians today. That's a fact, and you know who you are. So every one of them understood that in the history of the world, no one has been able to govern himself. No nation. Okay, can you govern yourself as an individual? Well, I've already told you, apart from God, no. You can have all the willpower you want. Eventually, willpower runs out. You can't do it. You cannot behave in a way that honors God without his help. And you're a fool if you think you can. You could spend years trying, like Luther, and go half nuts. God has to do it. But the founders saw, they observed, like sociologists, they observed that when revival breaks out, Christian revival breaks out in this town or this city or whatever, something happens. George Whitfield, the great preacher, was preaching up and down the Atlantic, up and down the 13 colonies for decades in the 18th century. And by the time you get to his death in 1770, 80%, listen to this, 80% of all the colonists alive had heard him preach in person at least once. Imagine when you add radio, TV. That was a joke. There was no TV or radio in the 18th century. 80% of all the colonists had heard him preach, and so many Americans, I don't have time, but so many Americans had been born again, had accepted Jesus. Oh, they might have been going to church, but they never heard this gospel message. There's no king but Jesus. He is the one whom you must follow. Don't worry about the policeman and the magistrate and the governor and the people with the power to force you to obey the laws. Forget about them. You can do it all by yourself if you give your heart to Jesus. He will make you want to be good. The founders observed that when people got born again, when they accepted Jesus, suddenly crime went down in that neck of the woods. Alcoholism went down. Sexual license went down. The ability to govern yourself and to govern ourselves went up. And they said, with these kind of people, we think this crazy idea of liberty could work because if people can govern themselves, we can have limited government. We don't need somebody pointing a gun at us to say you need to do the right thing because those people will do the right thing on their own because they answer to a higher authority. 
They believe Jesus is their judge, and they are happy to live for him. They don't live for him to earn heaven. They know it's a free gift that God died for them. They accept that gift, and then for the rest of your life, you live in gratitude by trying to please this God who loves you, and he gives you the power to live that way. And the founder said, when people live like that, they can govern themselves. This crazy idea called liberty and self-government is possible. And it's never been done in the history of the world. And the moment you stop living like that, it goes away. Well, Os Guinness, I'll close with this. Os Guinness, some of you know, he wrote a book, and I, I basically stole it to write my book if you can keep it. So I dedicated the book to him so he won't sue me. So far, so good. And he has an idea in there, and I said, i got to write about it in my book. And he calls it the golden triangle of freedom. And he says this, and, and the, the idea is that without faith, we cannot be free. Now, I don't mean everybody in America has to have faith, but basically there needs to be enough people who live this way and who buy into it that the culture buys into it. And here's what it is. The founders said, freedom requires virtue. If you're going to govern yourselves, you need to have virtue, right? That's self-government. You don't have a government governing you. You govern yourselves. How, do, how can we be free? Well, if you govern yourselves, you can be free. So you need virtue. How do you get virtue? The founder said virtue requires faith. They saw it every time there was revival. Wilberforce preaches. All these things happen. They said those people can govern themselves. But then they said, here's the key. Faith requires freedom. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. Faith requires freedom. Why does faith require freedom? Because you can't force it. You can't say everybody in the state of Pennsylvania will be this religion and will live that religion. You cannot force that. Either people do it freely or they don't. In the old country, in Europe, they had forced religion. And you know how that worked? It didn't work. Whenever you force religion, people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go to church because I have to, just like I pay my taxes because I don't want to get shot or put in jail. But, like, I'm not buying it, but I'll do it if I have to. The founder said if people don't really have faith, they won't have virtue. And if they don't have virtue, they won't govern themselves and it doesn't work. So they said we have to make faith free. We have to make faith something that we can encourage, but we cannot coerce. We cannot say everybody in the state has to be this, everybody in America has to be this. It doesn't work. So we have this thing in America called religious liberty. You can't force anyone to believe you can't, you, in this country, you have the freedom to be an atheist, to be a Muslim, to be a Jew, to be a Buddhist, to be a Christian, somewhat. Think about it. We have this religious liberty in America. That, that didn't exist around the world, okay? So the founders basically understood that unless we have a lot of people who love Jesus and who've accepted him into their hearts and are living to please him, we're not going to have self-government. That's the whole idea behind it. I explain it further in my book, but I just wanted to encourage you folks, if you want this country to remain free, if you believe in liberty and the ideas of the founders, you must understand that the principal means by which the founders understood liberty to be affected was through people of faith. If you live your faith out robustly, Everywhere you go, not in the church building on Sunday mornings. When you leave the church building, that's freedom of, of religion. When you live your faith out in the public square, on the workplace, whatever, I'm not saying to be a big pain in the neck to your coworkers, but my friend Ed Tuttle sharing with me on the workplace, I praise God he was a little bit of a pain in the neck to me because I wouldn't be here right now, would I? We have to be bold. The time is short. 
If you really believe what you say you believe, how could you not want to share it? How could you not want to tell other people about what you have discovered? And if you haven't discovered it, folks, I'm here to tell you, I want you to discover it because it is the greatest news in the history of the universe. No hyperbole. That is true. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm going to disappear for a little while. Where I go, you cannot come. But, uh, what a blessing. I just want to encourage you one more time. If you invite Jesus into your heart and ask him to prove to you that he is who I'm telling you he is, if he is who I say he is, he will give you the power to do things and to not do things that you cannot dream of right now. All I'm telling you is he did it for me. I know a zillion people for whom he has done it because he is real. We're not talking about a metaphor. We're not talking about an intellectual idea. We're talking about a person who created the universe who loves you. Think about it. Pray to him in the silence of your bedroom when you have a moment. God bless you.